to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I'm so glad that you're here. It's warm today. I know it. Let's get that all out and get that out of the way. Uh, but thank you for being here. Thank God for fans and uh, and dehumidifiers and a little bit of grace to uh, and some iced coffee back there to, to cool it off a little bit. So um, please feel free. There's plenty of water and iced coffee back there. So in the middle of the sermon, you're like, man, I just need... I need something, like I'm, I will take no offense, get up and get something to drink, okay? Um, so be sure to, to do that. Thank you guys all for being here this morning. If you're a guest with us today, we're just glad that you're here, uh, glad that you would join us today for worship. And so um, if you are, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. You can fill out this, that blue card you'll find in your seat. Um, and that's a way for us to get to know you, a couple ways for us to contact you. And for you filling out that card, we'll send some information to you via email. Uh, for doing that, we will uh, send you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Baker as well as make a $5 donation uh, for you. And in that email we send you, there will be a list of charities. And all you got to do is respond to that. Tell us which charity you would like us to give it to. And uh, we will send that to you uh, for doing that. So take that, that blue card and stick it in the black box on the way out on your right um, as, as you're heading out. Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news. Uh, It means that we were once separated from God because of our sin, but through the work of Jesus on the cross, we've been forgiven. All of our guilt and shame and fear have been taken away, and we can have a new relationship with God through Jesus. So if you've not entered into that relationship, if you've not given your life to Jesus, uh, Matt, our worship pastor, will be standing up here after the service. He would love to talk with you about how to enter into that relationship. Secondly, community. God created us for relationship. And so because of that, we gather together people from every walk of life, uh, every ethnicity. We gather together as the church, but also break out into community groups. Uh, We do this throughout the week. It's a great way to encourage one another, look to Jesus, and, and, and then love our neighbors together. And then lastly, mission. We join God on his mission to tell others good news, tell others about what Christ has done, as well as live life shaped by what Jesus has done. So uh, those are our values. A couple of announcements before we get into the text today. This is KSA week. We are there. Kids Summer Adventure is upon us. It starts tomorrow, runs through Friday in the morning, 9 to 12. If you are a kiddo, it is not too late to sign up. Uh, Just have your parent or guardian scan that QR code. If you are available, even if you have a day or an hour, like 14 minutes, I know that Heather, our kids director, would love to have you jump in on that. And so also we have a team from Shades Mountain Baptist Church. This is one of our partners. They're here this week to help us run uh, KSA. So be sure to say thank you to them if you see them this week. Um, so jump in on that. Then coming up on Saturday, we have our next uh, Boston Housing Authority cookout. So we are loving and serving our neighbors of Boston Housing. Uh, and there's a few ways that you can get in on this. Um, one thing you can do is if you go to our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events, click on that link. There's actually a way to, for you to sign up for a specific role. So if you want to like 
run the barbecue or you're a madman or a madwoman and you want to do the jump house like, or cotton candy or whatever it might be, you can do a specific role. So we do need people for that uh, to help, uh, help run that. And then just something fun coming up in, uh, in uh, kind of middle of August, we're going to have dinner on the Esplanade. This is going to be something for our adults, no kiddos. So adults, fine babysitters for that. Um, we're just going to go out to the Esplanade, bring your own dinner, and we're just going to enjoy a beautiful Friday evening together in Boston. So be sure to join us for that. Now, I know the question that is on all of your minds as you look at me this morning is, did Stephen get a haircut? Um, I didn't know. Uh, why are you wearing a sling? I'm wearing a sling because I dislocated my shoulder yesterday playing softball. It was a heroic dive in the first inning, and it didn't really matter in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I laid out, dislocated my shoulder, great teammates took care of me, got me to the hospital, everything got put back in, no tears, everything's okay, I'll start PT this week. But it's a humbling experience, right, to be laying on the ground, writhing in pain, and as my wife, and it was the worst pain I think I've ever experienced, but as my wife often tells me, I'm really bad at hiding pain. Like, I just let everybody know that I'm in pain and I'm struggling. And so, uh, but it's humbling. It's humbling to be like sitting there and people are all around you and they're touching you and they're like, I'm like, I'm just, I just need to get to the hospital. And so you're getting carted off and all this. It's, it's just humbling. Uh, and a lot of the Christian life is about humility. And we looked at a piece of this last week as we looked at the idea that wise people know how to apologize and that part of apologizing is learning to be humble. Um, and, this is, and this is biblically, we call this repentance. Repentance is a humble person who understands and admits that they're wrong, and they, they have humility to admit those things. And so we learn how to apologize to one another, how to say sorry to each other by learning how to do so towards God. We submit ourselves to God, as it says in chapter four, verse seven, we submit ourselves to him. We lay down our rights to justify ourselves. We lay down our rights to prove that we're right. Um, and we trust him and we realize that in, in apologizing and repenting and saying we're sorry, that's actually what leads us to life. And in fact, if you look at verse 10 in chapter four, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, that the way up is down, that if we humble ourselves, we admit our wrongs, that it actually leads to renewed relationships with people. And we see this with the Lord, that as we, we admit our need for him, we find real joy in him. He exalts us. And so today, we're going to dig into the idea of humility just a little bit more. I talk with my hands, so it's only, you're only getting half a sermon today because I only talk with one hand. Um, but we're going to dig into this idea of humility just a little more. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this, are you a humble person? Are you a humble person? Now, if you confidently and quickly say yes, you're probably not a humble person. You're like, I am the best at being humble. You're not a humble person. But when you imagine a truly humble person, what do you imagine? Sometimes I think we imagine a person who's weak. We imagine a person who's, who's navel-gazing and doesn't have a spine and doesn't stand up for themselves, but that's not humility. Biblically, that's not humility. Being, being humble doesn't mean that you're a doormat. It just means you're not always focused on yourself. C.S. Lewis said that if you really were to look at a person and actually see a humble person, you find that person's cheerful. That person is intelligent, but what you notice is that they don't talk about themselves as much as they take interest in you. They take greater interest in you because they're not busy patting their own back. They're not busy thinking about themselves all the time. They're actually taking greater interest in you, and you're drawn to those kinds of people. I want us to imagine if City on a Hill could be a church where we were truly humble people, where we weren't thinking about ourselves too much, but considering others. What, do you, what would you imagine that that would be like? 
Now, we're already seeing that in our culture. I believe we do a good job of that. I think that's part of who we are. Uh, one thing I do, whenever someone moves away from Boston and from our church, and we're in a busy city, it's, it's very transient, so we have people always coming and going. One thing I try to do is I sit down with them, take them to coffee and say, what is one thing that was life-giving and what was one thing that was hard about our church? Just so we can learn and grow. And so I was talking with Mike Doyle, so many of you know this past week, he just moved on Saturday, uh, moved down to San Antonio. It's this hot down there all the time. He doesn't know that. And uh, I was talking with him, I was like, tell me the thing that was, that's, what was it that was life-giving to you? And he said, people here are just warm and hospitable. He goes, from the very first time I came, Easter 2021, he said, everyone was just really warm and hospitable. They weren't so concerned about getting to their place or getting their seat or getting a cup of coffee. They were concerned with me and they wanted to know who I was and they wanted to hear my story. It's, it's how we make others feel welcome. Being a humble person is not coming to church on Sunday morning and saying, who, who can I impress with my status or how I look or what I know? It's, it's not you know, telling others about who I am, but it's showing people how good Jesus is. Is seeking to know others well. And what begins to happen as we seek to know others well? If all of us are committed to that, that means that we have a lot of people seeking to know us. I think this is something we can keep growing in. And I think humility begins to reframe what it means for us to be wise. What if wisdom, what if the knowledge that I'm learning from the Lord, learning from his word was not about puffing me up, not about what I know, not just simply about getting me from Monday to Friday every week, but it was about how do I express the perfect love of God to another person? What if it was about blessing others? And we realized that because we are perfectly loved by God, we have nothing to prove and that you've been free from that need of approval. How might that change the way that you approach others? I think it would cause us to, to come into situations like this less likely to begin reading off our resume of good deeds, our resume of accomplishments, all the things we think that give us validation and worth because we realize we're perfectly worthy through the work of Christ for us. And people like that, a church like that is compelling because our wisdom should be inviting because a humble wisdom isn't normal because we live in a world that's always about me, always pointing to self. So humility is not a normal way that we express ourselves. And so our, our humble wisdom is inviting. It's gonna look different. And what we have to ask ourselves is, are we any different than the unbelieving world around us? Do our lives look like that we're chasing glory, that we're chasing fame for ourselves, chasing our own accomplishments, or does it look like the life of Jesus? What was Jesus doing? Constantly, Jesus was deflecting glory away from himself to the Father. He's deflecting praise away from himself to the Father. He, he deflected attention to God and to the needs of other people, and he shows us that being wise means you're a humble person. So simply, our big idea that we're going to look at today is this, wise people are humble people. Wise people are humble people. And James gives us two ways to show whether you're a humble and wise person. And it's this, it's how do you speak about other people? And then secondly, how do you make decisions? Now that's not all that it means to be humble, but that's a large part of it. How do you speak about other people and how do you make wise decisions? So first let's look at the way we speak about others. 
James has said a lot in his letter about the words that we use. If you look back at chapter 3, James spent a long time talking about taming the tongue. In verse 4, This it's like a rudder on a ship that it directs your entire life. He says that it, there's power in the tongue and it, and it can be a, like a fire that sets ablaze. And so our words are powerful. Our words can cause damage. Our words can lead people to life. And we need to learn to use our words humbly. And one way that James says that we fail to do this is in verse 11, where it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Don't speak evil against each other. He goes on a little further to say, or, or judge. Don't, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, I think we need to take a little bit of time and unpack what those two phrases mean, do, to, to not speak evil and to judge. Now, the, to speak evil would literally be the word to slander. Now, we need to take a little bit of time to unpack that because the way that we think about slandering and the way that the Bible thinks about slandering are a little different. When we think of slander, we tend to think of the, the legal term, right? By the way, slander and libel are different. Slander is verbal, libel is written. But what they both, both, basically both are is to say something that is intended to hurt another person's reputation, and you're saying something that's untrue. It's a half-truth, or, or it's just an outright lie. Now, that can be part of what it means to speak evil towards someone or to slander someone, but it's not all of it. It's a little more. It's the idea of belittling a person, of speaking maliciously, to, to speak critically. And, and really, the only way to capture this is to say that you're speaking evil against another person because you're, you're defaming that person in the way that you speak about them, even if it's true. But also, there's the idea of judging. Now, this is where we really get mixed up, right? What's probably the most often quoted ver verse of the Bible that gets messed up the most is, do not judge lest you be judged, right? That gets messed up. And what that's become is you can never tell another person that they're wrong. In fact, if you're not a Christian, a lot of times those who are not Christians will say, look, all these Christian people do is judge people. And we need to understand what's being said by the word judge. Do we simply mean that we say something is right or wrong, or are we talking about con condemning people? There's a, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do it. We do live in a culture where to, to, there's a sense that if you tell anyone that they're wrong or anyone, if you disagree with somebody, you're automatically a judgmental person. But every single one of us every day are making moral judgments. We're, we're all evaluating and saying that something is right or wrong because if you say that one way of living is right, you're inherently saying that another is wrong or it's just not as correct or it's not as good or it's not as life-giving. And you may say, and I, and I do think that this idea, this idea is fading, um, but, that what's right for you is right for you and is right for me is right for me. That seems like a very kind of tolerant and non-judgmental way of living. But what's it really saying? If you're really a good person, you'll be a tolerant person. You'll, you'll be like me. And if, and if you don't hold to this idea, uh, ideology that what's good for you is good for you and it's good for me is good for me, then you're not a good person. There, there, is a, there is a right type of judgment, like Yankees bad, Red Sox good. Like, that's a good judgment. We can say certain things are evil, certain things are good. Philippians 4 tells us, for whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, there's a bad way to judge. You can judge in a way that's condemning, and that's what James is getting at. It's not just pointing out that something's wrong. It's not just pointing out that, that something is evil. It's not just pointing out that a person is making a bad choice. 
It's, the, it's saying this is the type of person that you are. I'm putting myself above you as a judge, and I'm going to pick you apart and beat you down. And what you're doing when you do that is you're saying, I know best. I'm really good at following the rules, and I'm going to pick out this one rule that you're not good at following, and I am, and I'm going to judge you over it. I'm going to treat you differently or poorly because I'm the standard. Now, notice again what James is saying. He's not saying that it's just untruthful words, but that you can use truthful words like a bludgeoning tool. It's about how and why you speak. And so the question is, is when you speak about other people, is it a hammer to beat them down? Are your words like a knife intended to cut people, or are they like a balm that's intended to heal? And when we speak about other people like this, it shows a lack of humility, and that lack of humility is poison for church unity. It's absolutely poison, because words are no longer being used to, to give life, but they're no longer being used to build up, but to tear down and to hurt. And this creates hurt and division and bitterness, because we have to realize who it's against. Do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, by the way, if you look at the bottom of your Bible, you might see a little a little footnote that says brothers and sisters. The context here is brothers and sisters. The Greek here is, is talking about both people, both classes, brothers and sisters. When you are speaking evil against someone or you're judging them, you need to know who you're doing it against. You're slandering or judging your family, your brother or sister in Christ. Now, you may have grown up in a family where you were just mean to each other and everybody talked about their back and you're like, do you know what aunt so-and-so said? Like, you know, like that might have been your family, but is that healthy? Is that a healthy family? Healthy families don't speak negatively about each other. They speak truth and grace to one another. When you use your words to harm others, you're doing it toward a brother or a sister. And we need to see why this is so important because we need to understand that the cross is the great leveler for us. This is a big theme in the book of James and his letter is that all of us enter into God's family the same way. You don't enter in because of the money that you make. You don't enter in because of your status. You don't enter in because of your clean past or your skills or your spiritual capacity. You enter in through faith in Jesus Christ alone through what he did on the cross. And because we enter in the same way through the work of Jesus, we need to see that Jesus as our older brother is the one that gives us all the blessings of God of being part of his family. In the ancient world, an inheritance was kind of tricky. The entire inheritance went to the oldest son. So you better hope that your older brother wasn't a jerk because he had your entire destiny in his hands. And, and you kind of had to suck up to him because it, whatever you got was what he was going to give you. Jesus is the older brother. The Bible says that he was the firstborn of God's creation. Not that he was, cre- not that he was created, but he came into the world as the, as the inheritor of all the gifts that God would give. And it means that every single one of us are dependent upon him. And so there's this place in Romans where it says that God chose us to be conformed to the image of the Son so that he would be a sort of first fruits of all creation, meaning that whatever Jesus receives from the Father, he gives to each of us freely and equally for those who place their faith in him. And so what, what James is saying is that you don't get to put yourself in place over another Christian because You can't speak poorly or unduly judge them because you are not the oldest brother. You are not the one who is in charge. Has anybody in here ever been like, I call it being three-named by a parent? 
You know, it's like, you know, you get the first, middle, and last name. You know you're really in trouble. So it was like Stephen Gerald Castello. I was like, dang it. And so you know you're in trouble. Some, sometimes my kids, when they were little, would try to do that to each other because they heard Amy and I do that. And they say to each other, I'm like, hold on, hold on, you're not the parent. You're not the one who's in charge. It's the same way for us. We're also doing this toward our neighbor. Verse 12 tells us that who are we to judge our neighbor God has a great concern in the scriptures that we would love our neighbors. And in fact, it says that the whole law is fulfilled in this, that you do what? You love your neighbor as yourself. It is impossible to love another person if you think you're better than them or you talk poorly about them. But also because we're just not qualified. We are not qualified to do this. Verse 11 continues, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Are you qualified to do that? Or are you getting out of line? Just this past week, I had to go over to Whole Foods to make an Amazon return, and they've got this nifty little machine now, and you go up and punch the buttons. I was really excited. I was going to be in there real quick. And I just kind of bebop up to the machine and start punching buttons, and somebody taps me on the shoulder. I had two good shoulders then. They tapped me on the shoulder, and they said, oh, excuse me, there, there's a line. And I turn around, and it's like 15 feet deep, 15 people deep. So I have to go all the way to the back of the line. I, I'd gotten out of line. In the same way, when we slander or judge another person, we are no longer in line. We are no longer doers of the word. We become people who are above it. We, we try to put ourselves in the place of the lawgiver, the only one who can save and destroy and has power over life. And in fact, I think our desire to do this is actually one of the greatest proofs that there is a God because we understand morality. Even when we wrongly place ourselves as judge and we condemn others, we do so because we have this great sense that there is a moral right and wrong. Again, C.S. Lewis says that moral law requires a moral lawgiver, and that if there's a moral lawgiver, that means there's something beyond us, one who's capable of saving and destroying. And this is why James says in verse 12, but who are you to judge your neighbor? You've forgotten you're, you're a part of a family You've forgotten your place before God. So how do we see this type of talk find its way into the church? One way is gossip. We talk behind people's backs. Gossip seems like a very innocent thing. It seems like something we do and it's just not that big of a deal. But it really has a way of sowing dissension because it hurts people's opinion of that person. So you're talking about someone and then you now say something untruthful or hurtful about that person. It also sows distrust. So like if I'm, if, if I'm saying something about someone else, that person's sitting there immediately thinking, wait a minute, what, how do they talk about me when I'm not here? It sows dissension inside of the church. And we can even do this under the guise of seeking counsel, right? We can walk up, we can talk to somebody, I just really need counsel about my, my relationship with this person. So we start to talk about them, but there's a very fine line and it tips over really quickly into gossip. For example, maybe you dislike something that I do as pastor of this church. And if you haven't figured, found that yet, trust me, it's coming. I'm, I'll give you opportunities. Um, I can be a forgetful person. I'm extremely forgetful. Um, I have like seven different ways that I try to remember things for, from writing it down to putting it in my phone, whatever it is. I'm going to forget some stuff. And so let's say that I forget to call you. I, I forget. There's a difference between saying, oh man, Stephen for, forgot to call me. That hurt my feelings. There's a difference between that and then saying it to somebody else and saying, he's so forgetful, he doesn't care about people. That's a, that's a different, that, that becomes slander. That becomes where you begin to say something about someone's character. I'm not saying any of you have done that. 
Now, maybe you need to talk to me about it, but there's two great questions that you can ask yourself is this, is what do I want when I say something to, to another person? What am I actually trying to get out of it? And then secondly, am I saying something that I would never say to that person? So gossip is one way we do this. The other way is just kind of cruel and demeaning speech. Speech that's dismissive, dismissive, that's cold, where you're looking at someone, you're kind of just ignoring what they're saying, or you cut them off, or you make it out like what they have to say is stupid. And then it can even come up in joking, in the way that we joke. And I want to be careful, careful with how we do this with each other. We can, we can be playful, but it can easily cross a line. The Proverbs say that like a madman shooting arrows of fire, which sounds like a very serious situation, uh, that man is like one who deceives and says, I was only kidding. There are ways that our words can be demeaning or cruel. And so a few questions to consider as we think about how we speak about other people is just honestly, how do other people perceive my words? When I talk about other people to someone else, did my words come across as someone who's seeming, seeking to redeem something? or to crush someone? They come across as life-giving or fault-finding. Secondly, am I a person who easily finds faults or flaws? Are you just kind of always on the lookout for character flaws in other people? Thirdly, do I assign motive or do I give the benefit of, the of doubt? Do I basically say, this is the type of person this is, this is their motive, or do I give that person the benefit in the conversation? Fourthly, and this is one you really got to consider, is do I enjoy it? Do I enjoy speaking negatively about other people? For some people, that feeds something in, in you. And then lastly, how does Jesus speak of me? How does Jesus speak of me when I sin? Won't you imagine the way that the Bible describes Jesus talking to the Father about us in heaven? How does he describe, the Bible describe him as an advocate, someone who's for us? How do others perceive my words? Am I a person who finds fault easily? Do I assign motive or give the benefit of the doubt? Do I enjoy speaking negatively? And then how does Jesus speak of me? The second part of this, the way we show our humble wisdom is in the way that we make plans or decisions. How do we make plans? How do we make decisions? And this is revealed not so much through what you say, but in how you go about making your decisions. Verse 13 says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such place and town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now we see this, this picture of merchants making plans, going from city to city, making money. Now on the surface, what's wrong with that? There's really nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with making plans or making a profit. I mean, the Bible is not anti-planning. It's not just YOLO all the time. Like you can actually make plans. In fact, the Proverbs talk about being people who make plans, being people who are full of wisdom in the way you plan and not being lazy, not being a sluggard. There, there's there's you know, some really good wisdom to, be, to planning. It's also not saying you can't be successful. I mean, there are warnings in the Bible about how money has a tendency to master us and to take our attention away, cause us to be self-reliant. But what is James really saying here? He's saying this is about your heart. It's about the the way that you make decisions that can lack humility from a heart that's full of pride and a heart that's full of presumption. And I think this is a really timely passage for us in Boston in 2022, because if you took the language here and you reframed it in modern language, we would all resonate with it. Come now, you who say this year or next year, I will get into this program or I'll get this degree move into this neighborhood, make a name for myself, make a ton of money and retire early. That sounds inviting, right? Again, that's not wrong. 
but it is wrong if you completely forget God in the decision-making process. If you completely leave God out of the planning. Have you ever slowed down long enough in making decisions to ask this, God, is this what you want? God, does this please you? Is this biblical? And a great question to tell whether you've slowed down long enough to include God is, did I give God a chance to tell me no? We forget to bring God into our decision-making And it lacks humility. And one reason in verse 16 it tells us is it's our arrogance. As it is, is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is the idea of someone who takes a certain pride in being in control of their life to the point that we could decide everything ahead of us, that we're the master of our own destiny, and we boast in it, kind of reading our own press clippings. And it's effectively saying, and nobody says this out loud, nobody actually says this out loud, God, I've got this. I don't need your input, but we're a little bit like a toddler trying to buckle themselves into a car seat. We're like, I can do it. You can't do it. So one end is arrogance, but a second possibility is anxiety. What is anxiety? It's simply control under threat. That we want to be in control and we realize that it's slipping away from us. And worry and anxiety are, are not in this passage, but it's clear from the Bible that, and from our lives that anxiety is an issue because we ask ourselves questions like, what if I don't get another chance? What if I miss out on this opportunity? What if there's not another road for me? And James gives us some sobering words in the middle of this to let us know that the idea of control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. You and I, no matter what we think, we are not fully in control of our lives. We want to be, but we can't be. And one way we see this is that you have no clue what tomorrow is going to bring. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? In the 1929 stock market crash, no one saw how bad the crash was going to be. Some people said it's going to be a little dip and there'd be some corrections. Some other people said we're going to hit a big, a big you know, drop off. It's going to slump off. They saw the cliff. No one understood the extent. No matter how wise that they were, no matter how much financial knowledge they had, no matter how much they knew about the stock market, no one saw it coming. There was something around the corner that surprised them. And to think that we know everything ahead of us and to plan in such a way that we don't need the God of the universe to help us plan is arrogant. It's it's prideful because you can plan all day. What happens if you lose your job? You can plan to to do something, but what what if your parents get sick? You could lose the ability to speak. You could get transferred to a new place. But the the hope of this verse is that it's not all bad. Sometimes blessings come that you never could have imagined. You met a group of people who changed your life. You you, you thought that you'd missed out on the job of a lifetime and there was something better around the corner for you. You found something even better. I am so glad that my plans at 15 didn't come to fruition or 20 or 30. I'm going to look back and 15 years and say, man, I'm so glad that my plans at 40 didn't come to fruition because life for us is not a right. It's a daily mercy that God gives us. And this gives us hope that we may not know what tomorrow holds, but there is a God who does. And you know what that does is it actually frees us to plan. 
It, it frees us to try. It frees us to go for it. Because if it fails, we have a comforter who's with us because our plans are not ultimate. And if things go better than we could ever imagine, we have humility because we have a God who gets the glory. Another reason and way that James shows us that we're not in control is that life is short. Verse 14, he says, what is your life? For you are a mist, or that can also be called a vapor, uh, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It means that we are frail. We are here and then we are gone. I love talking to Christians in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And here's why I love that. There's two things I notice about them. One thing they almost always say is this, life blew by. They said, I, I, I said, I still feel like I should be 20 years old, even 50, 60, 70 years later. And the other thing I noticed about them is that they sing a lot of hymns about heaven. You ever been in an older church? They just sing a lot about heaven. And I'm not going to sing any of them. You don't want to hear that. They get to the end of their life and they realize that this life is simply a vapor. It's a mist. It's here and it's gone. And that we have a hope in Jesus in heaven that gives us perspective on the life that we're currently living that we have a God who holds our past, present, and future in our hands, and that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The last way that James reminds us that we're not in control is he says you are, that we're dependent. Verse 15, he says, you ought to say. In other words, if you truly are wise, if you truly get this, that you don't know tomorrow and that life is short, you'll realize the dependency upon God is good. And this means that if, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you see how freeing that is? That the will of God and seeking God in our decisions, it's not handcuffs to restrict you, but guardrails to lead you towards life. That you're free to go and do and try according to his will because you are safe with him. That you're gonna be okay and that your relationship with him cannot be taken away. It's like the coach who tells the quarterback, I don't care if you go out and throw five interceptions in the first half, I'm not pulling you out of the game. What does that cause that quarterback to do? He never looks over his shoulder. He never wonders if he's about to get the hook. In the same way, when we entrust our plans to God and we give ourselves to him, we realize we're never going to get the hook. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. Three questions to consider when submitting your plans as we wrap up as you submit your plans to God, does this give God glory? God will never contradict his word. We try sometimes to justify it, but God will never contradict his word. Sometimes we'll try to ignore what it says. I mean, verse 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. But again, can God tell you no? Does this give God glory? Secondly, am I being honest about my harder motives? Am I being honest about this or am I trying to fulfill something only God can give me, whether that's approval or intimacy or purpose? And then thirdly, have I sought out counsel from other Christians, and this is key, in my church? These should be the people that you know the best. Now, it's not bad to get counsel from other people or other Christians that you know know from the past in your life, but isolated decisions are rarely good decisions. And God confirms through others that you're in community with. And I really challenge you that when you've got a big decision, bring others in on it early. And I think one way we see this is whether to move away from Boston or move to Boston. Oftentimes we kind of make the decision and then bring people in on things like that. Just be honest. Like, 
don't kind of slap God's will on it and then kind of, because that's kind of stiff arming people uh, if you haven't brought them in on it. Allow others to push back on your decisions, allow them to question, allow them uh, to do this because they have your good in mind. Wise people are humble people. And we see this in Jesus. He never belittled. He never made people feel lesser than. He spoke words of life, even when they were hard words. Jesus also submitted his plan to the Father. He said, your will be done. And that will took Jesus to the cross. That Jesus died for us on the sins, on the cross for our sins, so that we could be brought into God's family, so that we would have a God who can lead us through life. Let's pray.